October of 2012, uh, the Disney company purchased the Star Wars franchise from George Lucas. Would anybody like to guess how much they paid for it? Two billion? No. Higher. Four billion. They spent four billion dollars. And one person who commented on this wrote the following. George Lucas sold his Star Wars plot lines and characters to the Disney Corporation for $4 billion. But what did he sell? He sold a napkin on which an idea had been scribbled. He sold a fictional universe of his imagination. In fact, in the contract to Disney, Lucas sold the names of more than 30,000 non-existent planets. What did he really sell? For four billion dollars. He sold a story. Now Disney will make back their money almost in no time. And the reason is because people love stories. A great story resonates with us. It inspires us. We find great stories to be moving and we love to be swept up in them. And one thing that many people don't understand about the Bible is that the Bible is that kind of a story. And the whole message of the Bible begins to make sense when we understand that it's presented to us in the framework of a story. And what we saw last week is that the Old Testament is a story of love, the love of God, and betrayal, the betrayal of people. And today, what I want to think about is that the New Testament is a story of rescue. Now, on first reflection, we're all familiar with that theme of a rescue story. Uh, We've all heard stories before about good people who are oppressed by an evil villain or force or group. And when all hope is lost, some sort of a king or a hero or a warrior steps in to save them all. And, And he or she defeats the bad guys, rescues the good guys, often at a terrible cost. Sometimes this person even gives up their own life in the process. And the New Testament definitely contains all of those themes. But there's one key difference. In the Bible, there are no good people to rescue. And understanding the story of the Bible in in some way begins there. In the book of Genesis, the Bible opens with an act of extraordinary love. That is the creation of the world creation of people, which is met with a dreadful offense, that is, people's betrayal of God. And throughout the pages of the Old Testament, that extraordinary love is always present, but so is mankind's betrayal. And that does not mean that there is no good in people at all. It just means that everyone betrays God and goes their own way. And the Old Testament spells that out book by book chapter by chapter, page by page, and person by person. And when all is said and done, after all of it, you would think that God would be finished with us. But instead, in the Old Testament, God hints at a new day and a new hope. 
And he gives us the promise of a Savior who God says will one day turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And this is one thing I believe that makes the Bible unique from any other story. In the story of the Bible, the rescuer comes not to save the good people from the bad, but to save the bad people from themselves, to save them from their own badness. And in the New Testament, God initiates a daring plan that leads to an unthinkable sacrifice, which offers us ultimately a living hope. And picking up on last week, the final pages of the Old Testament end with a sad, dreary clunk. A night falls on the city of Jerusalem, and there is a 400-year span of silence from God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, During that time, Israel is first controlled by the Persians and later by Alexander the Great, who brings Greek culture and Greek language to Israel. Uh, Finally, 63 years before the birth of Christ, the Roman Empire takes charge, and that is where the New Testament begins. The story of the New Testament opens in Jerusalem with two unsuspecting parents and a miraculous birth. But it's not the one you're thinking of. Uh, The parents are an elderly couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're visited by an angel who tells them that in their own old age, they're going to give birth to a son, and that son's name is going to be John. Uh, This would be John the Baptist. He is considered to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. And John the Baptist is kind of like a hinge that swings the Old Testament into the times of the New Testament. And John is to announce the coming of the rescuer. Uh, Meanwhile, five months later, the story continues with two more unsuspecting parents and a miraculous birth. This is the one that you're thinking of. A woman, a young virgin named Mary, is engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, and she is told very directly and straightforwardly by an angel, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now those words may sound familiar to you if you were here last week. They echo a promise that was given to King David many, many years before. And Mary, the Bible says, treasures what this angel tells her in her heart. And Jesus is born. Now we will cover the details of Jesus' birth, I'm sure, sometime next month in our Christmas series. But many years pass. Uh, Jesus begins to grow, the Bible says, in wisdom and in stature. And for 30 years of his life, Jesus keeps kind of a low profile. But for John, the other child who's born at the start of the New Testament, it's just the opposite. He becomes a great public uh, uh, public personality, a public figure. 
John is very popular. He's a straight talker and an incredibly gifted preacher. And he calls on the people to repent, to go a different direction, and to be baptized. And many, many people do. John paves the way for Jesus. And one day, Jesus walks down that path. 30 years into his life, he he arrives and he does something surprising. He asks John to baptize him. Now, now Jesus is baptized partly to identify with sinners, even though he is not one himself. But he's also baptized in order to illustrate exactly what he was going to do, die and rise again, although the people would not understand that until much later. And at the baptism of Jesus, something absolutely amazing happens. The question that everyone would soon be asking, who is Jesus, is answered audibly by God himself. God at Jesus' baptism announces from heaven, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. And with that introduction to the world, Jesus begins his public ministry. Now, the first thing that Jesus does is he decides to build a team. These were his disciples, which simply means learners. Uh, He chose 12 men, all of them of different backgrounds and with different skill sets. And Jesus trained them and prepared them for a future they could have never uh, imagined at the time. Uh, What's interesting is that Jesus did not set up his own temple at that point and ask the world to come to him. Uh, Instead, Jesus went out into the world to the people, and he traveled for three years the countryside by foot. During that time, his work was comprised mostly of two things. The first thing was teaching, and wherever the people were, that's where Jesus taught. Uh, He taught down at the beach. He taught on the side of a mountain. He taught from the hull of a boat. And in his teaching, he showed people what it really meant to love God and to love each other. Uh, He talked about what true faith was. He told people about how they ought to forgive and love their enemies. He showed people how to pray. And Jesus' teaching was brimming with everyday illustrations of ordinary life and with humor. He talked about wealth and poverty, heaven and hell, the past and the future. And even more importantly, he talked about himself and how so many of the promises that God gave in the Old Testament were fulfilled by him. And the people, as they listened, they were convicted of the depth of their sin, and yet they had hope, and they followed him. In his own words, Jesus said, I came to seek and save those who are lost. And the people felt that from him. The people were drawn to Jesus like a magnet. Now, Jesus' teaching was marked by a new message, or maybe better said, an old message that nobody seemed to have grasped, and that is that you cannot get to heaven by being righteous because no one 
could ever be righteous enough. You see, to Jesus, sin was not just a behavior issue. It was a heart issue. Uh, The disease of our sin was so deep that we did not have the power on our own to control it. To Jesus, sin was a problem that only God could solve. And the situation of mankind was a desperate one. Now, this is a really hard message for any of us to understand and digest, but it was particularly an offensive message to the religious leaders and the priests and a group of people called the Pharisee in that day. Jesus called their personal pride and their religious standing and their social power into question. And this began to infuriate them. Now, along with his teaching as Jesus walked the countryside, he also performed, we are told, many miracles very publicly. At a wedding, Jesus changed water to wine. He calmed a storm. We're told he fed 4,000 people and then decided to outdo himself, so he fed 5,000 people. Uh, Jesus made a tree wither. He walked on water and he healed hundreds, if not thousands of people who were sick and hurting and desperate and often dying. And Jesus performed his miracles in part to verify his identity. Only God could do the things that Jesus was doing. And if he truly was God, then what it meant was that his message must be authentic as well. And here's the thing about Jesus' miracles. Jesus' miracles were an overflow of his love. Uh, Jesus' miracles were genuinely thoughtful and helpful and caring and kind. Jesus gave blind people a chance to see colors and trees and the people that they love for the first time. He gave mute people an opportunity to express thoughts that had been locked away inside their minds for years. He gave deaf people the sound of music and the laughter of their children. Lepers got their lives back. Paralyzed people were signing up for dance lessons. But you know what maybe the greatest thing he did was? when he brought a dead girl back to her heartbroken father, or when he called his lifeless friend, Lazarus, out of the tomb. Jesus had power over all things, even life and even death. Now, the religious leaders who should have been celebrating with joy, instead were simmering with jealousy. And though they could not deny that these miracles were happening, instead they attributed the power of the miracles to Satan, and they callously began to plot Jesus' death. And it was around that time that things began to take a turn for the worse. John the Baptist, who was... Jesus' friend and relative and follower is murdered senselessly. He's beheaded. 
And Jesus begins to talk about his own death too. And the people realize that Jesus is not going to make himself the king. He's not planning to overthrow the Roman Empire uh, from uh, oppressing Israel as many had hoped. And the public opinion begins to turn and the people begin to fall away. And many who once followed Jesus begin to see his message as too difficult. And Jesus' friends begin to dwindle and his enemies grow bolder. And there was one man who saw all of this happening with clarity. He was a disciple. His name was Judas. And Judas reasoned things out like this. He knew that Jesus was a wanted man. And he knew that Jesus would eventually be discovered and put to death. And he thought, if I switch sides, if I make friends with the priests, I may escape the same fate that Jesus is certain to face. And so, after three years of following him, Judas disassociates himself from Jesus. He he betrays him to save his own skin. He goes to the chief priests to strike a devastating bargain. Now, it is not too long after that that Jesus is in an upper room again in the city of Jerusalem, with his 12 disciples. This would be the last time that they would be together. It's a very sad occasion, but it's also a special occasion. They are there to celebrate the Passover meal, which is reflected on each year when Israel would remember during the Exodus when God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, and he struck down the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And on that day, God instructed the Israelites that a perfect lamb was to be sacrificed on behalf of each family, and the blood of this lamb spread over the doorpost would cover up all of their sins, and they would live. And with that occasion, weighing heavy, On everyone's mind, the Bible tells us that Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And Jesus took wine and he poured it and he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. This is the new covenant, the unbreakable promise in my blood. And what Jesus was telling them was that he was that lamb, that perfect, spotless Passover lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of the people that all who stand underneath it would be forgiven and cleansed. Or, as it would later be said by a man who was just a child at the time that this happened, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Jesus spent that night in a beautiful garden that was filled with olive trees outside of Jerusalem. It's still there to this day. But he didn't sleep. He was up all night uh, crying 
and praying with such intensity that he actually sweat blood from his pores, knowing what it was that lied ahead of him. And in the morning, he was arrested at dawn, and all of his disciples scattered. Jesus was abandoned by his friends to be crucified by his enemies. Now, what follows is horrible. Jesus is beaten, he is spit on, he is mocked, uh, he is illegally tortured without compassion. His clothing is stripped from him, his hands are tied to a post, and he is whipped mercilessly. In mockery, they put a purple robe on his back, and then they ripped it off again, opening up his wounds and cuts. A crown of thorns is placed on his head, and he's taken to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull outside the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus' hands and feet were nailed to a cross. He was lifted up naked. And the Bible says he was unrecognizable. Just to breathe on the cross took incredible effort and caused him excruciating pain. The Bible teaches that the physical pain that Jesus endured on the cross was nothing compared to the spiritual pain. On the cross, the Bible teaches God the Father for the first time does the unthinkable. He turns his back on his son. And all of the wrath that God has stored up against mankind, all of the wrath that we deserve to face alone for our betrayal is turned and applied towards the son, the spotless lamb. And with a dark, Sky and an earthquake, the Bible says, Jesus on that cross breathed his last. And he was buried. A tomb was sealed with a great rock, and the disciples gathered together in secret to weep and to pray, and they wondered if Jesus' life and if Jesus' death and if the three years that they spent with him had any meaning at all. Well, they got their answer three days later. Uh, To the surprise of everyone, in majesty and in glory and in power, Jesus rose from the dead. He was alive. And this is so important in all the Bible. Because this is the proof that Jesus really was who he said he was, the Son of God. And that he really did what he said he did. That is, he died as an acceptable sacrifice for our sins in our place. This proved that sin had been conquered and destroyed and that a person's betrayal no longer needed to condemn them. The path to forgiveness was now open and available through the Son for every person. And this was transformative. The old covenant of the law was fulfilled in Jesus, and now a new promise of grace through faith arrives. 
Well, Jesus, after his resurrection, he remains on the earth for 40 days. He's seen publicly by more than 500 people. He spends most of his time doing what he did before, teaching. But he's, he's showing people particularly how he fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. And finally, he gathers together all of his followers on the top of a mountain to say goodbye. Another sad moment. But he gives them something. Something called the Great Commission. And he commissions his disciples, who will now be called apostles. Disciples meant learners. Apostle means those who are sent. He sends them. He commissions them to go and tell all the nations of the good news. Tell them of the living hope. And from there, what we have described in the book of Acts is the rise of the early church. Now, the early church and, and its, uh, its development begins with a man whose name was Peter. Uh, Peter was one of Jesus' Disciples, he was a very bold person, and he boldly leads the charge. Uh, Peter goes back into Jerusalem, and he preaches a message in which 3,000 people put their faith in Christ. It was at an event called Pentecost, where for the first time, the Spirit of God descends into the new hearts of his believers to comfort them and protect them and secure them and lead them and guide them from within. And after that day, the church faces much uh, persecution. It's scattered, but it thrives in spite of it all. And early on in the book of Acts, the focus begins to shift away from a man named Peter to a man named Paul. And Paul is a person who is very central in the New Testament. He was a man who was originally named Saul, and he is extremely intelligent. He's brilliant. He's articulate. He's trained in the Old Testament. He's very young. He's got a lot of energy, and he is a Pharisee. And when we meet him, his goal is to crush the church. Uh, Saul, we are told, is filled with rage, and the Bible says he ravaged the church. Uh, Many of the early Christians were beaten and imprisoned and killed on his watch. Uh, Today, we would call the Apostle Paul, at that time, uh, a religious extremist. Uh, He may have been able to be accurately called a terrorist. But on a dusty road, on the way to Damascus, Jesus appears to, to, to Saul as a brilliant light. And Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we're told that he was blinded and he didn't eat for three days. And then his heart changes. And and to illustrate that, God gives him a new name. Now, Paul in the New Testament becomes the chief example of how God can transform a person's life. Because if God can change a heart like Paul's, God can change anyone's heart. That is still true today. Well, almost immediately, Paul begins to preach the gospel, the good news, and he doesn't stop for the next 30 years. In all, Paul probably planted 20 churches, and the book of Acts tells the story of God 
working through him and through others as the fledgling churches grow and begin to come to life. And over the course of three long journeys, Paul travels all across the Greek world, preaching and teaching just as Jesus did, training leaders, building churches. And along the way, uh, he faces many hardships. The book of Acts in many places reads like an adventure novel. Uh, Some people think that Paul spent 25% of his time uh, on these journeys in prison. And while he was on the road, he would send letters to the churches that he had planted. And that's where we have 13 books of the New Testament. They're written to those churches and also to individuals who led the churches. Martin Luther once said, to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. And in Paul's letters powerfully seek to convince us of that truth. That Jesus really is who he said he is. That he really did what he said he did. And how we might live in light of that spectacular news every day. Uh, The book of Acts ends with a cliffhanger. Paul is imprisoned and we're left with him awaiting trial in Rome. Now history tells us that in the end, the Apostle Paul was beheaded by a very evil Roman emperor named Nero. But Paul had finished his race uh, faithfully, and many of the men that he had trained, Timothy and Titus and Apollos, go on to establish the church. And, and, And we, sitting right here in this room, enjoy that legacy. But the story of the Bible does not end there. In fact, the story of the Bible really doesn't end at all. Uh, The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which was written by the Apostle John, tells us about what is to come in the future. And the key to understanding the book of Revelation is to understand that we can't understand it. And what I mean is that we can't understand it now. But one day, when the events of Revelation have occurred, we will look back and understand that book. Revelation is a book that is meant to be read mostly in hindsight. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things in the book that we can understand, because many things in the book of Revelation are very clear. We are told that God will one day judge the living and the dead, and that death, our great enemy, even now, will be vanquished forever. We are told that God's people, those who have been adopted into his family through the sacrifice of his son, will reign with God for all eternity. And that God's people will have a new home. God, we are told, in the book of Revelation, is going to make all things new. And what's so interesting is that the last chapters of the Bible are so much like the first chapters of the Bible. Uh, The end of the book of Revelation mirrors the beginning of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, in Genesis, 
God makes all things new. And in the end, in Revelation, God is going to make all things new again. The Bible opens with a tree. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's a tree whose fruit we tasted and we lost everything. It's the tree where we doubted that God was truly good. The Bible continues with another tree, this one a dead tree, shaped into the form of a cross. And that was a tree where God answered the question of whether or not he truly was good and could be trusted finally by unthinkably sacrificing his son on that tree, our Savior and King, who gave his life to bring us back. And in the end, in the last chapter of Revelation, there is one final tree. It's called the tree of life. It's actually the tree we were banished from back at the beginning. But now we are invited to enjoy its fruit, enjoy eternal life, enjoy the experience with God and with others and with each other that we are meant for. And we're told the leaves of that tree heal the nations. What's so interesting is that the close of the book of Revelation brings us back full circle. It echoes Genesis, the beginning of all creation, a time when the world was new and fresh and young and unspoiled, a time when God took man and shaped him, Genesis says, from the dust of the earth and held him up face to face and breathed into him the breath of life the time when Adam and Eve walked together with God in the cool of the garden, a time before the betrayal, uh, before sorrow and pain and death and sin. And there was a moment in that time when God paused and he looked around at this new world, all that he had created, and with joy he said, it is very good. And in the end, God says, for all time, things will be very good again. And that's the message of the Bible. That's the sweeping story. That's how it ends. It doesn't. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us this book But it isn't just the the book itself. It's what you've done throughout the history of the human race. We thank you that even though we are certainly not the hero of the story of the Bible, that Jesus is, that you invite us into the story. Thank you that though we would betray you, you have uh, paid so that we might be brought back with the life of your son. And we pray that that would amaze us. We pray that we would be captivated by a story that is unlike any story. And we thank you that it's true. And so we thank you today and we praise you for all that you've done and all that you will do. We thank you that Jesus was your son. 
and that through him we can be your children too. Amen.